0: Asalaamu Alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening. You are listening to Radio Islam, and I'm your host, Tariq Alameen. For those of you who are new to Radio Islam, we welcome you. We are a live call in talk show broadcasting from Chicago on WCEV 1450 AM, and you can listen to our live stream at www.wcev1450.com. And remember, you can now listen to us on the Tune In app at WCEV. So we hope everyone is doing well. Uh, If you haven't already done so, keep up with us on social media by following and liking us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, all at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. So there's a lot going on and we're going to just jump right into it, folks. So uh, we're going to be having a, a bit of a political science Um, grounded conversation today. For those of you who don't know or you've heard the term uh, political science is the branch of knowledge that deals with systems of government, the analysis of political activity and behavior. And to that point, we're going to be getting some insights on a recent New York Times article detailing General Mattis' assessment about the shift in policy away from counterterrorism and towards counterbalancing China and Russia I know that sounds a lot, Sounds like a, a big, big task, but we've got somebody who is well qualified to help us unpack that uh, and a lot more. Uh, on the phone joining us today, we have Dr. Chas Thurber. Uh, he's an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Northern Illinois University, whose research and teaching focus on international security, conflict, and governance. His research examines the range of contentious global politics from nonviolent resistance movements to interstate war. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Thurber.
1: Thank you. A pleasure to be with you.
0: So, uh, yeah, just kind of jumping right in. Um, wh- what, what would you say for the, for the person who's just a casual observer? Um, how would you explain our, our political... Uh, our foreign policy stance right now with with regard to this this pivot that's attempting to be made?
1: International relations scholars like to point out that there's often a lot more continuity in foreign policy between U.S. presidential administrations than you would think based on the rhetoric on the campaign trail. Mm -hmm. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that right now. One of the signatures of President Obama's foreign policy was what he termed the pivot to Asia, where he thought that the U.S. was investing a little too much in the Middle East region uh, and thought that the bigger challenge to U.S. security actually lies in East Asia, especially with the issues of North Korea and its nuclear program and the rise of China. Mm -hmm. And he got quite a bit of pushback from that from some members of the Republican Party and definitely now President uh, Donald Trump on the campaign trail, uh, who thought, one, that uh, the United States... uh, need to focus more of its efforts on the Middle East to maintain that intensity, especially with regards to the fight against ISIS. Right. And so this was kind of the number one thing that uh, now President Trump was talking about on the campaign trail, so this would be his top priority in office. But now that the campaign to kind of recapture uh, the territory that ISIS controlled in Syria and Iraq has more or less come to completion, We now see the Trump administration turning back to a very similar stance that President Obama had taken, which is to say that actually now the bigger threats to United States security lie in great power threats from states like China and Russia, and less so from transnational terrorism.
0: Mm. So the idea of when when we think of threats, uh, the the layperson uh, in general, when we think of threats, we're thinking of our our physical security, security. but beyond that, we're also, as, as a country, we're looking at our economic and our social security. Uh, how do those threats play out? How, do, how does uh, China and Russia affect our physical, economic, and social security? Yeah, well, these are two of the
1: largest countries in the world, both in terms of population, in terms of military capabilities, uh, as well in, in terms of the size of their economies. So maintaining that relationship is going to be one of the biggest challenges for for U.S. policy going forward, both in terms of competing security interests, uh, that the United States has maintained a large presence both in East Asia and Southeast Asia, uh, as well as along Russia's periphery in Central Europe and Eastern Europe. And as Russia and China have been rising in both economic and military power over the past decade they're bound to push back against what they see as this U.S. interference in their regions of influence. So there's a possibility, potentially, of uh, military uh, conflict uh, between the two sides. We've seen a little bit of that going on in Ukraine uh, vis-a-vis Russia. Um, There's a possibility that we could see uh, some degree of that in Southeast Asia. We see these skirmishes over territorial disputes over islands uh, in the South China Sea. And of course, economically as well, one of the major efforts that the Obama administration was trying to put forth was this trans-Pacific partnership of a free trade agreement with other states in Southeast Asia meant to kind of be a rival to China's economic relations with these states. Obviously, President Trump was strongly opposed to that and has pulled the United States out of that effort.
0: Mm. Now, how influential uh, is General Madison forming policy Uh, and do his statements about a shift containing Russia and Chinese influence signal a genuine change? And I ask this in light of the, the statement that you made earlier about the continuity that's not always recognized between one presidential administration to the next.
1: I think that's a very good question, and it's one that I and I think many others don't yet know the answer to. Uh, I think we've seen uh, interesting disparities between what General Mattis says and the types of statements that we see directly from the White House or directly from the president. Uh, The president holds General Mattis in very high esteem, loves to talk about his generals, usually referring to uh, General Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, uh, H.R. McMaster, his national security advisor, and John Kelly, his chief of staff. That said, uh, there often can be a disjuncture. Uh, Russia was a major theme of the national defense strategy document put forth by the Pentagon and General Mattis. Um, But especially we have not seen President Trump speak nearly as strongly about Russia Uh, as we see in that document if anything president trump came into office hoping that there might be able to be some type of rapprochement with russia that the united states and russia might be able to work together in areas such as syria for example um we get to see that and of course uh new knowledge about russia's efforts to interfere in the 2016 elections have complicated those uh, those dynamics Uh,
0: do you think president trump's refusal or reluctance to uh, to single out Russia's interference in the election, uh, does that compromise U- the U.S.'s uh, ability to to, to craft a, a vibrant foreign policy that that it, that deals with Russia uh, as a as a threat?
1: I think it has made the challenge very difficult that the Trump administration came into this office with an idea that I think is debatable but potentially has uh, some merit, is worthy of consideration, uh, that maybe it's possible to have a more cooperative relationship with Vladimir Putin and Russia. Mm -hmm. It could be that that's not possible. There certainly will be disagreements about that. That said, given the new knowledge about what happened in the election and the investigation led by Robert Mueller into whether there might actually have been collusion between uh, the two sides, has made it virtually impossible for President Trump to uh, make any moves towards that that effort.
0: Okay, uh, and, and I'm going to ask a question on, on behalf of I would say in Chicagoland there over there over 400,000 uh, Muslims uh, estimated over 400,000 Muslims, uh, and one of the things that concerns uh, a lot of the uh, of the population is the I guess the residual effects that present themselves here. Uh, in, in the United States with regard to the fight against the Islamic State. Um, and as the United States forms, uh, I guess, executes this pivot where they kind of take their attention away from uh, uh, the Middle East region and move over to into Asia, uh, do you think or do you see that having an effect here with regard to uh, the way Muslim Americans, uh, particularly those of immigrant backgrounds, Uh, are seen?
1: I don't know. It's too early to say. I think that it's clear that President Trump uh, has made uh, rhetoric about uh, Muslims and about the terrorist threat uh, a key part of his political strategy and platform Mm -hmm. and that we have seen that uh, correlate with a rise in violence uh, and uh, Islamophobia uh, within the United States. that is unfortunate in and of itself. Um, we might be able to hope that uh, with the downfall of ISIS, um, if that becomes less of a pertinent uh, foreign policy issue, um, that those sentiments within the United States will uh, abate somewhat. Um, but I think it's uh, yet to be seen. I think there's a, another fear as well that just because uh, the United States uh, has been successful along with uh, Iraq and uh, other partners and depriving ISIS of the territory that it once controlled in the Middle East region that, that does not mean that the movement is dead or over uh, in fact scholars of terrorism have provided quite a bit of evidence uh, to show that when these movements are in decline uh, that's often when they lash out and engage in a greater number of terrorist attacks uh, abroad
0: mm-hmm. and, uh, and and seeing that we have so many nuclear um, powers and, and we're trying to uh, make sure that um, that non uh, proliferation is something that is that is adhered to uh, when it comes to these types of, of standoffs where nuclear powers are their interests are uh, are in contention. How 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 do you navigate that uh, because we're talking about it's a no win situation if it comes to military um, where militaries have to um, be, become involved. How do do you navigate that from a policy standpoint?
1: Uh, Absolutely. The hope is, and fortunately the historical experience to date has been, that when you have two great powers with nuclear weapons, uh, they are cognizant of just how high the stakes are and are therefore more cautious in their interactions with each other. And in fact, some scholars of international relations will say that a world in which more states have nuclear weapons is actually a safer one because states act with greater discretion.
0: Mm.
1: That said, mm -hmm. uh, that is not a guarantee that that will always be the case. Uh, When you have leaders about whom we have less information, like Kim Jong-un in in North Korea, Mm -hmm. uh, you may be more anxious, uh, less confident that 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 will uh, be the case. Um, And it's also not clear uh, that simply the fact that both sides have nuclear weapons won't stop them from believing that they can get away with some... Uh, lower levels of of conflict, of of military force, thinking that, oh, things won't escalate uh, because nuclear weapons make it too dangerous. Uh, But if everybody kind of believes that logic, um, that creates opportunities for exactly that type of escalation.
0: Mm. Now, as the Trump administration, as as you said, um, upon taking office, um, he removed uh, the United States from the uh, TPP and... Uh, has uh, embarked on a series of bilateral uh, agreements Uh, with that type of strategy when it comes to uh, isolating or or implementing uh, economic sanctions uh, against offending countries or or, or nations that uh, whose interests might be, you know, in contention with with our own, uh, do you think that works against our ability uh, to, to form uh, alliances uh, by not by pulling ourselves out and just working on these sort of uh, one-to-one type of uh, arrangements?
1: Well, I think certainly we've already started to see in Southeast Asia uh, that the states that were going to participate in the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, have now begun turning, looking to China to try to strike economic and trade agreements with them. It may be possible that the U.S. is able, on a bilateral basis, to strike trade agreements uh, with many of these same countries. Mm. But it takes longer and may actually be more difficult to do it in a series of bilateral agreements than one larger multilateral deal. Furthermore, there's no guarantee, the way that President Trump would advocate, that by doing this on a bilateral basis, that the United States would be able to get terms that are more favorable.
0: Mm. Um do you think that, uh, do you think, do you see us in a position now where uh, nonviolence, that being one of the uh, areas of, of your research, uh, that not, nonviolent resistance has a place or has a way that it's going to manifest, I guess, on a multinational uh, scale?
1: Yes, I think that we have seen over the past two and a half decades especially, and increasing use uh, in nonviolent methods to resist states and state oppression. I think it is likely that we will continue to do so, um, that there are more and more tools available to protest movements. That said, regimes are getting smarter and more crafty in how they respond, finding ways of using information technology, the same information technology that these movements are using to rally mobilization, to target leaders, uh, to engage in more selective repression so it remains to be seen how successful these movements are in the in the long term, as we saw in the Arab spring uh, some initial successes turned out not to not to hold in the in the longer term, so it still remains to be seen, but I am confident that this will continue to be an important dynamic in international politics, whether it's protests that are going ongoing right now in togo, the protests that we saw in Iran earlier this year mm-hmm. this is one of the ways in which societies around the world achieve political change both within their states and across the international system.
0: Hmm. Now, as we mentioned earlier, that the the threat of the Islamic State is not necessarily uh, vanquished, um, that it could be in recess, but there are certain um, that there are certain um, consequences or or actions that come about even in a time of recess. Uh, We depend upon our partners in the Middle East, um, Saudi Arabia being one of them uh, to to, kind of help facilitate uh, that they don't rise up again. So that said, their interaction or the rift that has taken place between them and Qatar, um, how is that, do you think it's going to, it can come back to a point where we're going to find ourselves re-engaged more heavily in the Middle East?
1: This has often been the case in U.S. foreign policy when presidents have decided that they want to pivot to some other region in the world that they believe is more strategically important for the United States, that something happens in the Middle East that forces them to refocus their attention. For the Obama administration, this was the Arab Spring followed by the Syrian Civil War and the rise of ISIS. So it is entirely possible that uh, events could force the Trump administration a year from now, two years from now, uh, to rededicate efforts and attention to the Middle East. There are certainly many important conflicts and issues going on in the Middle East right now, whether it is this conflict between Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Qatar, the civil war ongoing in Yemen, and the massive level of starvation and illness, Mm -hmm. to the conflict in Syria, which still does not seem to be winding down, but is ongoing with more refugees and more fatalities.
0: Yes. Now, um, what are your thoughts on I mean, when it comes to having allies in any any region? You look for healthy allies, uh, and in, in some of these regions that you just mentioned, you are talking about Syria or Yemen. We're talking about places that have humanitarian crises that are taking place. Um, how how can our foreign policy uh, reflect a commitment to to strengthen uh, those places? Um, uh, so that so that we don't have to uh, engage again in, uh, within uh, with our military.
1: This this is a, a major challenge for the United States. Uh, it has chosen for uh, reasons that are in many cases understandable to build alliances with leaders in the region, uh, who have built their political powers in ways that are likely unsustainable for the long term and not for the long term benefit benefit of their societies. And so when the United States decides to engage in these uh, alliances and these relationships, it brings important benefits. You mentioned before the type of intelligence sharing uh, and cooperation in efforts to dismantle terrorist networks, which is extremely important for the United States. Um, But that has come at some cost as well. And we see this, especially right now with Saudi Arabia, uh, a state that has been a strong ally of the United States, uh, but is engaging in activities vis-a-vis Qatar um, and contributing to this humanitarian catastrophe in, in Yemen uh, that are uh, don't don't seem to be in the United States' broader interests. And we see this in Turkey as well uh, with President Erdogan's kind of retrenchment towards authoritarianism. Um, also, not in the United States' interest, but it's uh, creating a difficult decision for the United States. Uh, to what degree is it going to allow Erdogan to continue on this path and maintain its alliance relationship with Turkey?
0: You know, when we look at the uh, condition of people around the world under various uh, governments, uh, and we also, we, we kind of, I guess, balance that against what is in our own uh, interest as as a, as a nation, uh, how does that, uh, how, how are those things reconciled when we look at, uh, the, the people on the ground, uh, and, and, and what is in their interest, uh, in comparison or, or does it have to be a, uh, either, or, uh, is it a, a win-win type of a, um, uh, approach or is it, we simply look at what gives us our best outcomes as a nation?
1: Yeah, I think there are clear cases where there are either, or, uh, Turkey being right now being a great example, uh, do you try to isolate and put pressure on Turkey to uh, undo some of the uh, damage it's done in the past uh, couple of years and try to, to become more democratic once again? Uh, or do you let things slide and uh, try to build a strong alliance with Turkey to achieve some of your common strategic goals in the region? Uh, in many cases, this is an either or choice, uh, and I think it 's something that policymakers and analysts struggle to to deal with. Uh, we often conflate the two things in our minds uh, and find ways of rationalizing what is strategically advantageous as the morally right thing to do as well. Um, so I think it makes that kind of decision making r- really difficult at the at the psychological level.
0: Mm. And what do you think the future of U.S. policy and U.S. position is uh, as the world's dominant country? I think it's very much in question
1: at the moment. There was a period of time uh, over the course of the 1990s in which there was kind of a broad bipartisan commitment to the idea that the United States should play a large role around the world, be involved in uh, diplomacy, and at times it's also meant to be involved militarily. Uh, in crises uh, in other parts of of the world, often in the name of humanitarian intervention. Uh, After September 11th, we saw a refocus on uh, the fight against terrorism. Uh, But now we're we're seeing the ascendance of kind of a new strain of thought of this idea uh, that the United States has spent uh, too much effort, too much time, too much money involved in, in global politics, and it should rededicate some of that effort closer to home. I think to this point, that has been largely rhetoric from the Trump administration, um, that he has uh, said these things to appeal to a domestic political audience, but at the same time um, has been quite active in the fight against ISIS, uh, using missile strikes uh, against Syria last year, uh, and in pushing for uh, the large increases to the military budget that we saw get passed and signed into law last week. So I think it remains to be seen what the actual on-the-ground implications and actions of this administration are. But we've certainly seen a rise in the rhetoric and the general idea that it's time for America to come home and play less of an active role in global affairs.
0: Yeah, and and to that point, in order to do that, it's extremely important that we have uh, healthy partnerships and alliances. And once again, the idea of pulling ourselves uh, out, it's, it's kind of a... I, don't, I wouldn't say, you know, have your cake and eat it too, but yeah, yeah. I, I think that, that that might be an accurate yeah. way to put it. I mean, I think this has been part of the challenge, right?
1: Uh, when we're talking about the behavior of Saudi Arabia and Turkey, uh, the idea that they are now doing things that run contrary to U.S. interests, I think is largely a result of the fact that they see the United States withdrawing from that region uh, worried less about affairs in the Middle East. And so they see themselves as having a little bit uh, more latitude, more room to maneuver, to engage in activities that maybe they were worried a few years ago that it would result in pushback from the United States. Uh, but now they're being given more or less the green light because the United States wants to focus attention, its attention on, on other areas. So the strategy of saying, well, let's let Saudi Arabia play a larger role in, in the Middle East and the Gulf so that the United States uh, doesn't have to be as involved. It's great in theory, but then when we see it play out in practice, we see Saudi Arabia pursuing Saudi Arabia's interests uh, in the Persian Gulf, which is to be expected, uh, often at the cost of, well, as in Yemen, um, great humanitarian cost, uh, but also U.S. the cost of U.S. interests.
0: And, and that's interesting because it's, it, historically it's, it's either been a military presence or, or coupled with uh, uh, foreign aid uh mm-hmm. and uh, whether that be whether that come into um actually supplying arms uh to whomever is in power but as those have, have those things begin to to change as well and it, i mean as as we maybe remove our military physical presence are we also seeing a change in the uh, allocation of a foreign aid as well
1: I think foreign aid is is yet to be determined um But I think the hope and the idea is that, isn't there a way that the United States can remain involved economically, diplomatically in foreign affairs, but without committing to the types of military interventions and operations uh, that it has been so frequently involved in over the past 15 years especially, um, but even I think it could push back through the the 1990s. Mm. Um, So I think that's the goal, that should be the hope. I think it runs into two challenges. One is just bandwidth. You have a new administration uh, that is struggling to fill all of the positions within uh, the administration, actually paring down quite substantially uh, the size of the State Department. So that gives you less bandwidth to deal diplomatically with all of these crises around the world. And the other is the point that you're making, that I think even as you try to do this, there will be some decrease in leverage that comes from Uh, moving your troops out of the region, or simply what I think is a pretty broad understanding now that the United States is not going to commit itself to a large military operation on the scale of what it did in Afghanistan uh, or Iraq again in the near future. And so actors are operating, uh, believing that that's no longer as much of a risk.
0: And my, my final question, do you think that this is going to require uh, our decreased military presence, um, uh, as well as you know, ensuring that our interests are still uh, secured, is that going to mean a, a change in expectation that maybe we go from being uh, from from being number one uh, as far as uh, uh, the interests are, our, our interests are concerned to having to come in uh, second or third behind interests of those who are already uh, nations in that in the region.
1: I think so. If the United States wants to decrease its footprint uh, around the world, that is going to come at some difficult trade-offs in terms of seeing things happen around the world that it does not like. And I think the clearest examples that we've seen in the past few years have been what's happened in Syria, Mm -hmm. that after the disaster of Iraq, that you had a pretty broad consensus with the United States not to do something like that again. And then you see, uh, as the conflict develops in Syria. Uh, and the reports of uh, so much death and suffering. Um, this urge that shouldn't we do something? We need to do something to to stop that. Uh, and the Obama administration was pretty resolute in terms of uh, trying not to uh, take steps uh, that might uh, commit the United States to a, a more substantial involvement. Um, but it's been a, a difficult thing to stomach, um, in part for strategic reasons to see the U.S. not have influence over this process, or if, uh, as it looks like Assad is going to stay in power, that 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 was not its geopolitical goal, but also from a humanitarian standpoint, that we've seen an incredible amount of uh, human suffering um, and decided that uh, the options on the table for what the U.S. could do about it um, just weren't that good.
0: Okay. Well, Dr. Thurber, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Uh, to shed some, some, some light and give some insights on, uh, on, on a lot of complex issues. And I hope that we get a chance to talk with you again.
1: I would love to do that. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: All right. All right, Radio, Radio Sound family, Dr. Thurber is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Northern Illinois University. Uh, we thank him for joining us. And, well, I guess I should we should close out properly. Uh, we want to thank our engineers over at WCEV. Our producer for this uh, episode has been the impressive one, Ibrahim Beg. I'm your host, Tariq El uh, also our in studio engineer, Ibrahim Beg, once again. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. The views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and are to be taken as representative of Sound Vision Inc. We're going to leave you now as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.